been driving for a few years, at some point you have probably been driving down maybe even the streets of Gillette, Wyoming, and you have come alongside of a vehicle that had a sign on it saying, caution, student drivers. Now be honest, you know exactly what happens at that moment. At that moment, you're looking at them and you're hoping and thinking you're not going to swerve over into my lane, are you? You're thinking to yourself, do they even see me? Did they read the manual and know how they're supposed to drive? And there might be a little bit of caution in your spirit. Well, as I was looking for an illustration this week, I came across a cartoon, and the cartoon was Caution, Student Pastor. So in other words, you have a student pastor, a young pastor, inexperienced pastor, and I wonder if Sometimes we go, oh boy, I hope, I hope he stays in the right lane. <laughs> well, I'm here to say that I don't think Timothy fits this description. What I appreciated about learning about Timothy and his life and his ministry in the first two weeks of introduction was that, yes, Timothy was a young man. Yes, Timothy was brought along in Paul's ministry as a young man, and yes, he aided him. Um, I don't know if he got him Starbucks coffee every morning, but he did aid him, especially when he was in prison. And then you see the growth of Timothy. Timothy then would begin to preach the gospel. That's mentioned in Corinthians. Later on, Timothy was growing so much that he was being sent out by Paul to various churches to strengthen them and encourage them and teach them, as well as let them know what was going on with the Apostle Paul. Well, here in the beginning of the book of 1 Timothy, it begins with him being left at Ephesus. And by the way, Titus was just left at Crete. So two new pastors, if you will, to pastor that church for a time. And of course, we know that part of the reason that this has been done was so that he will indeed straighten things out in the church there in Titus, and then also in First uh, Timothy, we see that he is going to learn how to conduct godly living and godly administration there at the church. Now, I do believe that the title, I think, goes along with the key verses, which are twice, he says in First Timothy, to fight the good fight. Now, it doesn't mean we come to church to fight. But it means that just like from the very beginning when he's going to talk to them about I've sent you there to keep false teachers at bay and to correct certain men who are teaching different doctrine. And so it is a fight and it is a labor of love. But if you remember, this was also used by the Apostle Paul of himself at the end of his life said that he had fought the good fight. And I believe it's fighting the good fight in the church, meaning that the church is the pillar and the support of truth, and we have to fight for it. Well, we'll move on from there, but you'll see over time how I, th I think this is a good title for this and how I think that this is a, a good way of understanding First Timothy. What we're going to do today, we're not going to get very far but I've entitled this Paul's Commission to Timothy, verses 1 through 3. We have the letter from Paul. Paul's writing a letter to Timothy. 
to instruct him. So even though he's not inexperienced, he still has and needs the mentorship of the Apostle Paul to instruct him. It is written to Timothy. I know I, these, these outlines are just brilliant, aren't they? I mean, uh, nothing simple about them. But there's something to say about this. We'll talk a little bit more about Timothy. And then verse 3 is when I believe Timothy was called or told by Paul to remain at Ephesus to the Ephesian church. By the way, you know that we did, we spent over a year studying the book of Ephesians. Someone has said that the book of 1 Timothy could be called 2 Ephesians. So this is the same church. The letter had already been written to uh, the church in Ephesus while Paul was in prison in Rome. This is after that. We'll talk about that. But this is now to go because false teachers had moved in. Well, before we go any further then, Let's read verses 1 through 3 again, and then pray. It says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, according to the commandment of God our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, who is our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace mercy and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you upon my departure for Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, as we embark on this great epistle, Lord, I pray that we are yielding to the Holy Spirit, that our minds and hearts are open to learning the truths that are in this epistle. Father, yes, it was written to Timothy, and yes, he was acting as a pastor, but it does apply to the church, and it applies to all believers in the church, and there are many things that we can apply to our own lives and should especially the idea of fighting the good fight in the church. So would you teach us this morning, Lord? Would you put this all together? Would you move our hearts, strengthen us, and excite us about this study? And we'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we begin then, as I said, it's a letter from Paul. And the first thing that I want to talk about is, therefore, it's obviously written by Paul, we have Paul's authorship. Now, in our introduction, we did talk about the authorship of Paul, and we said that this is generally accepted, particularly by believers, it's generally accepted that Paul wrote this, and yet there always are dissenters who, in their attempt to defame the word of God, will begin with denying the authorship of an apostle, a God-appointed authoritative apostle, which makes what is written here the truth to be believed. Now, just quickly, you remember that some of the things they said, and I'm not going to go over that, but one of the problems that they had was how do you harmonize the fact that Paul was in prison when he wrote this and Paul was in Macedonia when he wrote this, when his prison was in Rome? 
Well, obviously, they have their details wrong. And one of the ideas and solutions is, well, when you go to the book of Acts, the book of Acts ends not at the end of the life of Paul, but it ends while Paul is in prison or imprisoned there in Rome. In fact, Acts chapter 28, verses 30 and 31 concludes with, and he stayed two full years in his own rented quarters and was welcoming all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God. Of course he was, wasn't he? Preaching the kingdom of God and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all openness unhindered. And then the book ends. And we may say, well, why did it end? Well, one of the reasons is, is because the book of Acts is not finished. We are continuing the book of Acts because of their labors. Salvation to those individuals, to those individuals to come all the way to today. But for whatever reason, God chose to do that. We do believe that Paul was released. And Paul went on his final journey. And during that time, he wrote 1 Timothy and Titus. And then later, Paul was arrested a second time and imprisoned in Rome a second time. And he writes 2 Timothy, and he even writes in that letter, I am in chains. And it is there in his second epistle to Timothy that he talks about that he's being poured out like a drink offering, meaning he believes that his life is coming to an end, and sure enough, he was martyred after that. Now, we're going to look at that in a little detail, not now, but at the end when we get into verse 3, and I think it's going to be very, very beneficial. There are other things that people have said. They said, well, um, you know, the early church had pre-Gnosticism, but when Paul writes, it looks like he's, he's writing to a full-blown Gnosticism of the second century, or whoever wrote this. Well, that's not true, because the very thing that Paul's going to talk about with these false teachers is that, one, they're in the church, two, they're Judaizers or have, have a tendency for Judaizing, which is believing the gospel and believing other things have to be done. That wasn't a part of second century full-blown Gnosticism, and it's still not a part of Gnosticism today. They don't, they don't go to our churches, and they, it has nothing to do with Judaism. It seems like it's a full developed church organization, and they think that should have started in the second century. Well, can I help that Paul is an administrator? Uh, we go to the book of Acts, chapter 14, even before the end of the book of Acts. It says, and when they had appointed elders for them in every church, having prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. This was already being done, so it's very explainable how it's fully developed. One of the other ones is that there is only brief theology discussed in the book of 1 Timothy. He doesn't go into detail, say, even in the letter of the church to the letter to the church of Ephesus. But you have to remember that Timothy has been with Paul for some 15 years. He's been through Theology 101 with him. In fact, he's what? Probably on Theology 505 now with him. And so when you, when you know those things are covered, you, you really don't necessarily have to say all of that. You don't have to bring all of that out. I mean, we do that here. If I, if I feel like I've preached on something not too long ago, I don't feel as if I have to preach it in the greatest detail 
in my next sermon. However, if I feel like we haven't talked about it for a while, and it's been quite a few years, and it's something we have new people now, it's something that needs to be preached, then I will preach it in detail. But this is understandable. But by the way, we're not saying that he doesn't teach theology at all. He talks about, in 1 Timothy, the proper place of the law, salvation, the attributes of God, the fall, the person of Christ, election, and the second coming of Christ. I often wonder if those things are even being preached by the dissenters who don't believe that Paul authored this church, uh, this letter to the church. Finally, it was, well, it's a very personal style. Yes, because Timothy has been with him for 15 years now, and it would be personal, and he would know about Timothy. He would know about Timothy's weaknesses. He would know about Timothy's ailments. He would know what areas to bolster Timothy up again with. And so it would be very personal, and that means nothing as to whether this is the Apostle Paul or not. So we see his apostleship, and he's the author. And again, why is that important? Well, because an apostle is one who has the authority of God to preach and teach and write the scriptures without error, infallible. Not saying that they're not sinful, but when they preach, we call that the kerygma, we call that the doctrinal statement of the early church as we look at what they preach, these apostles preach, and when they wrote. It's on the same line as a prophet who, it says in Second Peter, whom God, the Holy Spirit, spoke through them. That's exactly what it is when we talk about Paul's apostleship. In fact, let's look at this. So Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, according to the commandment of God, and let's stop right there, but according to the commandment, Paul was called as an apostle. Paul was saved to be an apostle. Paul was appointed to be an apostle. This is so much different than what's happening today, where you not only can be appointed by men to be an apostle, you can appoint yourself to be an apostle. But there is no way that, that you could ever say those kinds of apostles are the same, can preach infallibly. In fact, we know that they don't. We know that they don't preach infallibly or write infallibly. Today, there's self-appointed pseudo-apostles. Well, what are we to do since we don't have any more apostles? Ah, but we have the apostles teaching, do we not, in our hands, the scriptures, and that's what it says. And the early church devoted themselves continually to the apostles' teaching. And that's what we should do because God has designed it for us that way. Now, he says, I have been appointed by the commandment. And that's interesting here. So what commandment did he get? Well, you remember he was on the road to Damascus. And there he was saved. There the Lord Jesus Christ not only appeared to him, but commissioned him. And in Acts chapter 9, it says, when Christ appeared to him, he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city, and it will be told you what you must do. So there is the call. 
he was told when he got into the city. Well, the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. This is the one who's writing this epistle. So when he talks about doctrine, when he talks about the gospel, he has every right to say, anyone who preaches any other gospel than the one that I have preached, let him be anathema. Because he has the apostolic authority. And so the things in this letter that are going to talk about false teachers, correct teaching and doctrine, also how to conduct business in the church, if you allow me to say it that way, this is coming from an authoritative, God-appointed apostle. Now, it says, according to the commandment of God our Savior, an interesting phrase here, um, we know that the commandment also came from Christ. But I believe this phrase, God our Savior, is referring to God, even if you will, the Father. This is an Old Testament phrase, the God of our salvation. And so Paul is, is thinking of the God of our salvation as he's named in the Old Testament, Elohe Yishi, Elohim salvation, the God of my salvation, he is the one who orchestrated salvation. Not only called Paul and saved Paul, but he orchestrated it and sent the Lord Jesus Christ to come and die on the cross for our sins. This is the redemptive plan that God planned before the foundation of the world, and he's carrying it out. And I believe Paul realizes this and is acknowledging this, that this is all according to your plan. That the apostles are the ones who are preaching the gospel in its truest message. They're, they're writing in and it's recorded for us today. And I'm also giving instruction to Timothy, a pastor, on how to conduct business in the church, both behavior and also administration. And so we, we have this. So it's a fascinating phrase. But he doesn't stop there. And he says, end of Christ Jesus. Because Christ Jesus also called them. And by the way, there's an implication here. If God calls you into an apostleship, and the Lord Jesus Christ called him into an apostleship, then it's implied that Christ is God the Son. In fact, we'll see that even more so in the next verse. But it's in reference to the Father planned salvation, the Son accomplished salvation, and God the Holy Spirit applies salvation he's the one that opens our minds and our hearts that we as being dead spiritually can now hear and see the truth and embrace christ as our savior but it's the lord jesus christ who did indeed die on the cross and i just want to pause a moment here because he says christ jesus who is our hope now We've said this a million times, and I don't mind saying it again. When we talk about hope in the Bible, it is certainly not a wishy-washy hope or a wishful hope. Oh, I hope so. I hope my team wins. I hope this goes well. No, when you talk about the scriptures and the hope that's in Christ in the scriptures, it is an expectant and sure hope. It's a sure hope. We do have eternal security. We do have a sure hope. And we're fully or ought to be 
ought to be fully, fully expecting these promises to be fulfilled. That's what gives us our strong faith. That's what gives us our peace in the midst of trials that we have. That's what gives us our desire to go on and keep ministering even when there's difficulty in ministry. That's what gives you your joy when you're at work and things are not going well and someone says, I don't know why you're not losing your temper. I don't know why you're handling it like this. And you have an opportunity to share with them the hope that is in you. Now, let's talk about this for just a moment. So it's the father planned it and the son accomplished it. But that's what we learn in the most basic of verses in the Bible. By the way, that's why this... This is a Bible church, and that's why we teach from the Bible, because I don't want to give you my opinion. I want to be careful not to give you my opinion. I want to be careful to give you only what the Bible says. And one of the most, um, probably most known, well-quoted verses is John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. This is what Paul is talking about when he says, and of Christ Jesus, our hope. We also find in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That is the gospel. The gospel is that we are sinners, God is holy, he cannot fellowship with sin, therefore we are, not, we are not invited into heaven. In fact, we are not allowed into heaven. But God so loved the world that he gave his son, that even while we were sinners, Christ died on the cross for our sin. He took our sin, he took our punishment. He took our punishment for us. Now that doesn't save everyone universally. We must believe on Christ. We must place our faith in what he did, believe it was for us, and trust in it for us. And the moment that our arms of faith embrace Christ, we are at that moment forgiven from all sin, past, present, and future. Hallelujah! What a Savior! And this is the hope that we have. And of course, there's other places about hope. 1 Peter 1.3 says, blessed, they, they can't contain themselves. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, they understand that we must exalt God. He's worth exalting. He's worthy. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Father, Sending and planning, this, planning this, the salvation of the Son, the Son accomplishing it. The moment we trust in Him, we are saved, born again. That's a biblical word. And we have a sure hope, a living hope, an eternal hope that when we die, we'll be going to heaven. Now, if you're here today and you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, or let's look at it another way. If you're here today and you're disgruntled with the world and all of the disappointments of the world, and maybe even trials in your life, disappointments in your life, disappointments in other people in your life, and you have almost no hope, let me offer you the hope of Jesus Christ. 
and the hope of Jesus Christ far exceeds anything that's going on now in this life because it's an eternal hope. And when we trust Christ as our Savior, and that's all that the Scriptures ask us to do is when we, we see that we're sinners, we see that God hates our sin, we must come to Christ realizing that He died on the cross for our sin. Lord Jesus, I believe You died on the cross for my sins. Be my Savior. Save me, Lord. I trust in Your, your death on the cross for me. And at that moment... You are forgiven and you have eternal life and you have this hope. And if you're here and you've never trusted Christ, may you embrace that hope this morning. There is no other hope. Well, let's move to the next verse. So this letter from Paul shows Paul's apostolic authority and even call and shows already the salvation. And by the way, so... In a way, we could have just said, entitled this, well, this is the general salutation that, the Paul, that Paul usually gives. Well, Paul, even though he usually does it like this, these salutations are anything but usual or common. Paul gives every theological uh, insight in all of these. I can't imagine that Paul would just write the same thing over and over, and he doesn't. When he writes to Timothy... He says, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. But I would like to walk through that this morning. I would like to show you that even the salutations are inspired by the Holy Spirit. Even these are for our admonition and growth in Christ. To begin with, he writes to Timothy. And as we've already shared a few weeks gone by, Timothy, of course, the name is made up of two words, Time means to honor, and Theos, which means God, and it means one who honors God. I love that name, and, and Timothy lives up to that name. He does, as you look at his biography in the scripture, he does live up to that name. His heritage, he had a Jewish mother, and he had a Greek father. Now, we believe that his mother came to Christ, but probably very safe to say that his father was an unbeliever. Uh, one of the reasons was is that Timothy was not circumcised as most Jews would have had their son circumcised. Probably didn't believe in anything like that except the gods, the Greek gods. And so Timothy probably grew up in, I'd say, well, an unbelieving home until, until Paul came by Lystra, on his first missionary journey. Now, before we talk about that, I want to talk about his age. And it is believed that, that Timothy was quite young. Very possible his late teens or early 20s. And one of the reasons that this is said is when we get this letter and we go through this letter, and in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 12, Paul says to him, let no one look down on your youthfulness. Well, he joined Paul 15 years ago. You know, are you still youthful? And he's not talking about his character. You know, he's an older fellow, but he has that, uh, he has that skip in his step. He's not talking about that. He, he's really saying, don't let that anyone intimidate you because of your age, your young age. And so he's a young man, and that's what leads us to, to believe that he was called 
either while he was in his late teens or his early 20s. Now, what about his conversion? Well, when Paul went through Lystra in his first missionary journey, we believe at that time for sure that his mother Eunice and his grandmother Lois came to Christ under his ministry. And it's very possible that Timothy also came to Christ at that time. And there's a couple reasons why. One of the reasons why is when Paul comes back a year later on his second missionary journey, Timothy is already a believer, and not just a believer, but an outstanding believer. Probably someone who has a desire to be in ministry. Maybe even Paul's ministry. And when Paul goes there in Acts chapter 16, verses 1 through 3, it says he asked him to join him. Paul asked Timothy to join him because the brethren spoke so well of him. And, and partly when, they, when you, you see it says they spoke well of him, you're thinking of he, he's very spiritual. He's, he's growing. He's learning. And maybe he's even teaching and being involved in discussion. And he's just growing. And when, and when Paul hears this, he wants to bring Timothy along. The second reason is, of course, very obvious. Here in verse 2, to Timothy, my true child in the faith. And I didn't always think that Paul led Timothy to the Lord. I thought maybe his, his mother did or grandmother did. But there's numerous titles like that. Whenever Paul, or many times when Paul talks about Timothy, he uses these expressions. Uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17, he says, For this reason I have sent to you Timothy, who is my beloved and faithful child in the Lord. So here, he not only says that he's his child in the faith, but he says he is my true child in the faith. And that particular Greek word has an emphasis. It has an emphasis of being genuine or legitimate or lawful. It can be used that way. And it's not saying that he's his biological father, but it is saying that it very well could be that Paul was his legitimate spiritual father, meaning he's the one that brought him to Christ. And now he is going to mentor him disciple him, cause him to grow. Can I offer an application here? What a beautiful thing it is to lead someone to Christ, is it not? But I remind us that I believe that there's a responsibility to those whom you lead to Christ. And the responsibility would be not only to lead them to Christ, but get them to Grace Bible Church. I mean, get them to a good church. Get them to a good Bible church. And, and then you want to work with them and disciple them. That's exactly what Paul did and is doing with Timothy and is going to continue to do it. And Timothy remains with Paul for some 20 years before Paul is martyred. And God graciously allowed us to be a part of leading this individual to Christ. God graciously allows us in many cases to have this special responsibility of causing people to grow, causing them to grow and have the right beliefs, causing them to grow to the point where maybe they are starting to evangelize, 
and then maybe they are going to start discipling others. You're training them for ministry. The truth is, is that Paul was all about the church. He was all about bringing them to Christ and then discipling them. And obviously from 1 Timothy and Titus, we see that the church is a mainstay in that whole process. But we as believers, if you've led someone to Christ, you do have a responsibility to check on them. You do have a responsibility to help them. You have a responsibility to pray for them. And I believe you have a responsibility to disciple them. And I would think, again, one of the great things that you can do is to bring them to church where this should be going on. The preaching of the word, the knowing of the scriptures, um, seeing them be discipled, seeing them be prayed for. You know, what a wonderful testimony yesterday Shane shared about you people, the church believers, and the love of Christ in you and the fellowship that he had with you. And that's exactly what the whole Rickett family, even though you're a member of the Rickett family, six people removed, um, we know that, that that's what's supposed to be there. That's what you're supposed to look for. And it's the word of God that brings all of that about. But you, when, you, when you bring someone then to a church that disciples, you are in one way making a great stride in edifying them as well as you being personally involved. Well, he says to Timothy, my true child in the faith. And then he says, grace, mercy, and peace. Again, we hear that a lot. And most of Paul's epistles begin with grace to you and peace. But it's not just because he writes it down and needs something to write and he needs a salutation. There is something to this. First of all, grace. What is grace and what is grace to Paul? Grace is the work of salvation for and in the believer. Turn with me, if you would, to 2 Timothy chapter 1. And I know we're in 1 Timothy, but I feel I have a little freedom to treat a little bit and go into 2 Timothy and see some of these things. 2 Timothy chapter 1 verse 9 where it says, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. Wow, I wish we had time to preach on that verse today. But it's God who does the saving, God who does the drawing. God, I believe, even instills the faith in which to believe and we find out that this has been God's eternal plan from the beginning that is grace God God's reward God's riches at Christ's expense G-R-A-C-E God's riches at Christ's expense and of course they would very much be familiar with the idea of grace how about in Ephesians chapter 2 we read that. And they know this here in, in Ephesus, and Timothy knows it. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, and not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. So when we talked about receiving Christ earlier here, it was not, if I do an, a, enough good works, God will let me into heaven. That is unbiblical. That is not true either. I mean, nothing we do can erase any sin. 
only the blood of Christ and our faith in him. For by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. So when Paul talks about grace, he's thinking, oh my word, the very fact that I'm no longer persecuting the church, the very fact that I'm saved, the very fact that I'm an apostle, the very fact that I'm writing to someone that I led to Christ, someone who is now in ministry with me, someone who is growing in their own right in ministry, what else can you say except grace, grace? But he does. He says grace, and then like I said, he usually says grace to you and peace. He always mentions peace, and peace is a very familiar thing to Jewish people. Their address is peace or shalom. It's peace, and oh, how they have always wanted peace, and one day they will get peace. They will get peace by the Prince of Peace, but he says peace, and I think the peace that he's talking about here is peace with God. So before you come to Christ, you are an enemy of God because you have not come to him. Let's be honest. When you talk to many unbelievers, I mean, they, they don't like Christianity. They can tell you all the things that they've ever heard that's wrong about Christianity. They tell you about things that God was mean in the Old Testament and those types of things, and God is a God of wrath, which he is, but he's also a God of peace. He brings peace. Peace and reconciliation with himself, a holy God, through the Lord Jesus Christ. And Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. It means we have a relationship with him. But then there's the word mercy. If you've noticed, I've saved the word mercy for last. Okay, so... If grace is the work of salvation for and in the believer, and peace with God is the result of grace realized in the believer, mercy is the means by which a believer receives peace with God through the death of Christ. In other words, it's by the act of mercy on God's part based on what the work of Christ has done that he can extend mercy. And you know, I think this is special to Paul. We don't find mercy in a lot of these salutations. <clears throat> I believe this is special to Paul and probably even Timothy. They probably talked about it. One of the things that Paul will say in this epistle, he will humbly say who he was in his former life before he came to Christ. But by the grace of God, the mercy of God, he's been saved. Turn with me, if you would, to 1 Timothy 1, verse 13. 1 Timothy 1, verse 13. <clears throat> he says, even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor, yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in belief. And, of course, this was going after and attacking believers, the church. And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and the love which are found in Christ Jesus. It is a trustworthy statement. And listen to the humility of this man. Humility goes along with grace. If you believe that you've been saved by grace, then you are humble. You are not proud saying, well, I was just a little bit more religious than the others. I was just a little bit more intellectual than the others. 
I was just a little bit more attuned to it. No. He says, it is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I am foremost of all. For this reason, I found mercy, forgiveness of sins, so that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. So if you're here and you've never trusted Christ, but you say, I'm too bad of a person to be saved. No, you're not. No, you're not. Christ died for those sins as well. And quickly moving through this, he said in verse 2, he says, To Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace. He says it's from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Of course, grace, mercy, and peace can only come from God. There is no other person, there is no other thing that can give you grace, mercy, and peace in this sense. And so God is the source. God the Father is the source. But wait, there's a conjunction. And it's also from Christ Jesus our Lord. But wait a second, there's those who don't believe that Jesus Christ is God. Well, he is God because if grace, mercy, and peace can only come from God and he's now assigning it to the Lord Jesus Christ, this is an implication of the deity of Jesus Christ. We talk about the person and the work of Jesus Christ. His person is he's God the Son. His work is that God the Son died on the cross for our sins. And here Paul, in just his salutation, oh, that we could write our letters with the same level of salutation that Paul did. And then we go to verse 3. And in verse 3, this is where we're going to see now the call to Timothy to be the pastor at the Ephesian church. And it says, As I urged you upon my departure from Macedonia, Remain on at Ephesus so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines. And next week we'll get into what are the characteristics of those strange doctrines. But not this week. First of all, I want to go back to that first statement. I urged you upon my departure from Macedonia. Now wait a second. Did he write it from prison? But his prison wasn't his Macedonia. Or was he released from prison and is now writing from Macedonia? And also he left Timothy so that he could go to Macedonia. Well, let's find out. And I dug back into our sermons from the book of Acts. When we concluded the book of Acts, we looked at Paul's final missionary journey that's not recorded in Acts. And truly, it's, it's a little difficult to know the exact dates and to know the exact places. But guess what? The pastoral epistles, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus, give us enough little hints and information that we know what Paul was doing after his release from the Roman prison, the first imprisonment. So I'm going to use a chart. This is the chart from the book of Acts. And yes, I've tweaked it a little. I always tweak a little. So 
This is Paul's final journey and the writing of the pastoral epistles. We're going to find out when he writes, and we're going to find out when he leaves Titus in Crete and when he leaves Timothy in Ephesus. So it begins with Rome in his first imprisonment to Rome. And you remember they had to go there and there was a shipwreck and there was a whole lot, you know, it takes up a whole lot of acts to go through all of this. But he's in Rome for two years and it says that at the very end of the book of Acts. Nothing else is recorded. But it says he was there for two full years. Now, while he is there, he does do some writing, but not to Timothy. And, and we think that Timothy was probably even with him there a little bit because when he writes these prison epistles, Philippians, Colossians, Philemon, he mentions Paul and Timothy. So Timothy was there aiding him while he was in this... Uh, uh, he was handcuffed to a guard and, and all of that. But he wasn't mentioned in the letter to the Ephesians. Interesting. Uh, interesting. So maybe had another, he had, had some other duties that Paul had called him to to strengthen another church. Well, it, we, don't, we don't see this in the book of Acts, but it says that he went to Rome to go before Caesar to plead his case. And he does in A.D. 62, around that time, we think, A.D. 62, and he was acquitted and released. I don't know if Jerry Spence flew in from Wyoming to represent him or not. But anyway, um, didn't need to because the scripture says that Jesus Christ is our advocate, our lawyer. So he stands before the throne of God. Well, what happens after he's released? Well, there's a, there's a suspicion that he goes to Spain. He says that he wanted to go to Spain. If he was going to go to Spain, this is the opportunity. So many believe that he went to Spain. Uh, we have no record per se from the Bible, but we do have a record in Romans 16 where he says, whenever I go to Spain. So you know Paul... Paul was like thinking well ahead of all the places he needed to go to and wanted to go to, and Spain was on the list. Now, sometimes he was prevented from going to those places immediately, but he usually had opportunity then to go. And so we believe that he may have gone to Spain. And by the way, there are some sources, extra-biblical sources, that claim he went to Spain, First Clement, uh, talks about that he went to the farthest limits of the West. That would, in that day and age, and what the West was, that would have probably been around that same location. Uh, in other other writings, they talked about him going to Spain. Well, he had to come back from Spain, didn't he? He comes back from Spain, and they sail to where, the Isle of Crete. And what happens there at the Isle of Crete? Well, in Titus chapter 1, verse 5, Paul says, I left you in Crete. So here's Paul in this administration. Not only is he, not only is he instructing the churches to, to appoint elders and deacons in the church, but he's also a part of ministry and, and, and moving pastors around. And he puts Titus there to straighten out what needs to be yet done. And one of the things is they need to appoint elders. So he's there in Crete. Well, he keeps going, and, and we're still assuming that Timothy is with him because Timothy is going to get transplanted, transplanted shortly. So from Crete, we're not exactly sure 
where he goes. And by that I mean whether he went to Colossae or not. We don't know for sure that he went there, but we know for sure that he wanted to go there. So when he writes to Philemon, we find out that Philemon is from Colossae. That's where his master is from. And um, uh, Onesimus is the slave. Philemon was the master. And in this letter, he talks about prepare me a lodging. So I'm going to come to Colossae. But Paul, you're writing this from in prison in, in Rome. Yes, but it does say in Philippians that he believed that he will, rather than go on to be with the Lord, he will remain to minister. And he has, I don't, we don't know that the Lord told him this or he had a vision of this, but, but Paul was pretty right on saying, I'm you know, thinking I'm going to be delivered. He says, prepare me a lodge. So most likely he did go there because he, he follows through like that. Well, after Colossae, or some point he had to go to Miletus. Maybe he didn't go to Colossae and he went from Crete to Miletus, but we do know he does go to Miletus because in 2 Timothy, another pastoral epistle, uh, Trophimus is left at Miletus because he's sick. So we're putting these pieces together. We're not exactly sure exactly of the dates and we're not exactly sure of the route, but this is a very possible route. So he goes to Miletus. Next, he goes where? To Ephesus. And of course, this is now in the background of Timothy being there in Ephesus. And this is the background of eventually Paul writing a letter to him. And this very verse, 1 Timothy 1 verse 3 says, On Paul's departure to Macedonia. So obviously he was free. Obviously he was released. And He's going to put Timothy in Ephesus to, to take care of things there while he's going on. And he's going to go to Macedonia. Why? Because there in Macedonia are the churches that he led the believers to Christ, established churches there. Hey, one more time, he's going back. He's seeing these churches. What a heart for the church. So when I was getting ready to leave for Macedonia, I told you to remain on there in Ephesus and then he writes in this letter, and we find out what the purpose is. The purpose is because of these false teachers. The purpose is because he wants to give him some instruction on how they should conduct their church. Troas. Well, it goes to Troas, and we know that because in 2 Timothy, he says, bring the cloak which I left at Troas. So he inadvertently leaves a coat there, but I'm glad he did because now we know that he went to Troas and he's writing to Timothy to tell Timothy to come. He says, pick up my coat when you come. Well, then we believe that he possibly goes to Philippi and that would probably be the next one on the journey because while he writes the letter from prison in Rome, he says, I myself also will be coming shortly. So he hadn't been acquitted yet, but he fully believed it. Fully believed this was God's will. And this is where he writes 1 Timothy. Now, not necessarily from Philippi, but it could be, but the area of Macedonia. You see Macedonia there? So that would cover Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, and Nicopolis. That would cover those areas. So somewhere at this time is when he writes to Timothy. Goes to Berea, then goes to Nicopolis, 
And we know he goes to Nicopolis because in Titus, he tells Titus to come to him in Nicopolis. Now, we believe that he goes to Corinth, and we're not exactly sure of when and where or how of the route, but this would be a likely route because he writes that Erastus remained at Corinth. So that's in 2 Timothy. So we know that he did that. And he writes Titus possibly from Corinth at this time or Nicopolis. Anyway, he ends up back in Nicopolis because that's where he gets arrested. And that's, he's going to be taken to Rome and imprisoned in Rome. And here's what we find out. Paul is arrested and imprisoned a second time in Rome. Paul writes the second and final letter in 2 Timothy while in prison because he says the word chains. He says, I'm in chains. Well, he was in Macedonia when he wrote 1 Timothy, not in chains, but now he's in chains. And remember, Timothy is supposed to come to him. He is aware, it seems like it. Maybe the Lord revealed this to him, but he is aware that he will be martyred. He says, the time of my departure has come. He talks about being poured out as a drink offering. And he also says, I have fought the good fight. What good fight? Well, look at, look at the fight that he's been doing here. The fight of visiting the churches again, building them up, strengthening them, fighting false teaching. That's the, the fighting the good fight. Nero, who is Caesar, ordered Paul's beheading in about 67 to 68 AD. Not 100% sure of that time. So 62, he was released. This is six years after that. So this whole thing took about six years. According to Tertullian, excuse the gore, it just says the executioner struck off his head. He was beheaded. That's how he was martyred. At that point, there became a massive and severe Christian persecution continued by Nero. And by the way, I don't know for sure, we don't know for sure, but you remember we said in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 23, it said Timothy was being released from prison. So if Timothy was there in Rome and Paul was beheaded, it's very possible that he was arrested there as well. We don't know for sure. But one thing we do know, it seems like this all had to have taken place by 68 AD because Nero died 68 AD. Now quickly... As we talk about this, he's saying, Timothy obviously knows all this. Now we know this. And he concludes in this, which we'll pick up next week, that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines. And by strange, it's the Greek word heteros. It means different. Different from the doctrine that the apostles have been giving. We'll talk about that. But I want to close with an application. And I want to use this chart as an application. Now, how do you make an application from going over Paul's final journey and all these cities? Well, that's very obvious. When you go on vacation, visit as many cities as you can. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. But I'll tell you what it does do. It does show you that Paul was a great example of someone who fought the good fight and what the good fight was and that the good fight involved building up the church.
And the church is the body of Christ. And I'd like to talk about the body of Christ and this example for just a moment. In a way, does it not remind you of Stella Cox, who was here? I mean, I just get that, you know, when I hear her talk about where she was, and she's been doing it for 50 years and more. By the way, um, pray for her. She did fall and um, hurt her, hit her head and was in the ICU. So uh, she's out of ICU now and getting checked over. Everything looks okay, but just keep her in your prayers. But anyway, here's Paul. He gets released, and what's the first thing we would do? Man, that was too. I'm I'm going. Uh, I'm going to go on vacation, uh, maybe somewhere where I can go coyote hunting in the morning or something. And then antiquing in the afternoon. That's not how he is. A great example was, I've got to get back to these churches. I've got to see how they're doing. I've got to see if false teaching has moved in, and I've got to correct it. I've got to, I've got to see how the elders are doing. I've got to see how the pastor's doing. I want to go and encourage them. I want to lift them up. I want to be encouraged by them, and I want to encourage them. That's the Apostle Paul. But we're studying Timothy, aren't we? That's okay. Because you know what? Timothy has a kindred spirit. This is what... One of the reasons why I'm beginning to love Timothy. Timothy is also a great example of fighting the good fight in the church because he has a heart for the church. He has a heart for believers and he has a heart to see them grow. And in 1 Timothy 1.18, it just says, This command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you fight the good fight. Possibly talking about the gift of pastor, possibly talking about the gift of administration. At the end of the book of 1 Timothy, he says, Timothy, fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of eternal life to which you were called, and you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. But what I'm really talking about is while Paul was in prison in Rome the first time and wrote the book of Philippians, one of the prison epistles, he says, I'm sending Timothy to you soon because there are not many who have a kindred spirit for your welfare like myself and Timothy. Listen to this. Turn there if you want. Philippians chapter 3, verses 19 through 23. But I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly so that I also may be encouraged when I learn of your condition. Paul, we want to know about you. How are you doing in prison? Here's Paul. He wants to know about them. He wants to know about how they're doing, or if they're growing. And then about Timothy, he says, for I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. There it is. There's the heart. That's the heart of a pastor. For they all seek after their own interests. That's others, not those of Christ Jesus. But you know of his proven worth, that he served with me in the furtherance of the gospel like a child serving his father. Therefore, I hope to send him immediately as soon as I see how things go with me. So Timothy is also an example. And this example of this, this, example of this final journey is showing that he's, he's visiting all of these churches that he did in his early missionary journeys. He's got Titus in Crete helping them. He's got Timothy in Ephesus helping them. 
and then he's going to call them back. And by the way, doesn't, shouldn't it make sense that all believers ought to share a genuine concern for other believers, the body of Christ, the church? We should have this. This is what we should have. You should have a concern. Now, I'm thankful that you've come to church today. I'm thankful that you have a commitment to come to hear the word of God. But it's not just that. It's also to have this concern, a kindred spirit, as Paul and Timothy, for the welfare, the spiritual welfare of the body of Christ. I appreciated Shane's devotional yesterday. He shared about the body of Christ. And I was truly thinking about how am I going to apply this chart? And he talks about the body of Christ from 1 Corinthians where it says, all true believers are, number one, members of the body of Christ. You are a member of the body of Christ the moment you trust Christ as your Savior. You're in a family. That's why we do get along. Also, if you're a member of the body of Christ, you are equally, equally, equally important. You're equally important. The eye, the hand, one can't do without the other. You are specifically gifted if you are in the body of Christ. He gave you specific gifts according to the will of the Holy Spirit. And he's going to also put you in the right church where those gifts are needed. You know what? When you ask the question, is this the will of God that I go to a town and I go to a certain job? You should be asking this question. Is there a church there that I can get involved in and I can use my spiritual gifts, the ones that he gave me? Because we need your spiritual gifts because... Because um, the elders are great guys, but they don't have all the spiritual gifts, and neither do I. And, and rightly so, we need you. They are workers together. And they're workers together for the purpose of glorifying God and edifying the church. That's what we are to do. And in this day and age, when church is put down on a lower place, don't even have to go to church if we don't want to go to church. Church isn't that important. Someone asked John MacArthur, they said, what, what was one of the greatest influences in the lives of your children when they were growing up? And this is what he said. Well, first, it would have to be the work of the Holy Spirit. Beyond that, it would be the tremendous, relentless, comprehensive, and unified effort of a whole congregation of people to bring to bear the truth of God on their young lives. Wow. One the great importance of the church. The church is not dead. The church has not been replaced. Number two, you talk about influence. We're going to learn here in Timothy that the church is the pillar and the support of God's truth because that's where the word of God is preached or supposed to be. And as you put those two elements together, your children are being edified, being grown. Now, I have always said, and I do believe, that the, res the responsibility of your children is you, fathers, to raise your children in a godly way. We are here to help. And one of the ways in which we help, 
we edify the fathers. We teach the fathers so that they know correct doctrine and correct application and they can teach their families adequately. And we'll have wonderful children's ministries to aid in that. You can send them to that. And we'll have men's fellowship to get together and, and we'll hear devotional by men so we're developing men so that they would grow. It has a major impact. The church is not dead. The church has not been replaced. And the church is a wonderful place of influence, powerful influence. That's why we're not supposed to neglect it in the book of Hebrews, it says. So just in closing, let me just say this. In a sense, we are all student learners. Caution, student learners. There's a Greek word for that. Mathetes means disciple. We are all disciples, and disciples means learners. We are always learning. And Paul and Timothy will teach us how to fight the good fight in the church, the body of Christ, through this epistle. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that every word and even common salutation has major meaning to the Holy Spirit, to you, through the Apostle Paul, to us. And Father, we see, the, we see the, the labor of love that Paul and Timothy had all those years, the responsibility that they felt toward everyone who they led to Christ, the, the camaraderie of the body of Christ, the church, where we are specifically gifted and we all need to put our gifts together so the church, the body of Christ, can be